Amen. I encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word. We're in 1 Timothy together. We're in chapter 4, and this is starting in verse 6. Apostle Paul writing says these things. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning, one and all, and happy new year. Or as my uh, darling two-year-old Kate has been saying this week, Merry Christmas and a happy new you. (laughs) And for some of us, that probably fits very well, if we're honest. A happy new you to you, Kate. Uh, It's a joy to be with you, though. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Doxa, and uh, I get to preach this New Year's message. This is my eighth year in a row preaching the New Year's message at this church, and so I intend to do that every year I can until I'm told I'm not welcome to anymore. I'll take the claps, but thank you. Stop it, stop it, stop it. It's okay. It's, It's only eight years. It's only eight years. Uh, we'll, we'll wait to 10 to uh, give the applause, but uh, no, it really is a joy to preach these New Year's messages. I, I, I've just come to love it very much. I look forward to it, and I don't preach a, uh, a, a New Year's message traditionally so thought because I couldn't do that eight years in a row, right? My seven tips for a best year of your life are only good once, I would imagine. I have to get seven more and seven more, and so I don't have seven tips for you this year, but I do have the Word of God for you this week, and so I am hoping that's going to be enough. That can be enough, church? All right. You will see, though, as it's been neat the way God weaves this together, um, you'll see very much application for those of you who, and I'm among you, who want to think through this time of year. It's the new year, some reflection time, some goal-setting time, perhaps. I'm not against that, by the way. I think you'll see some application there. So we're in 1 Peter. I'm 1 Peter. That was a long time ago, actually. We're in 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 4. Last week, Pastor Scott started uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and Paul addresses to Timothy the fact that in, in later days, in the times between the advents of Christ, that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And that was a great way to round out the Christmas weekend, right? And so we went headlong into that last week, and he's warning uh, Timothy, this beloved protege, this young pastor that he's writing to, who's a pastor in the church of Ephesus, where we get the book of Ephesians, and so you can tie that together, and he loves Timothy dearly. He's got all kinds of pastoral, weighty uh, theology and um, I mean, advice, not to put it too lightly, but regarding church leadership and instruction for how the church is to be ordered 
word and structure so that it bears the greatest witness to the lordship of Jesus. And he's, he's walked through uh, uh, now three full chapters, and we're getting into chapter 4, verse 6, and hopefully you're already turned there with me. And he's turning his attention now to Timothy and, and what Timothy should do and how Timothy should respond as a pastor in light of the facts that he has put down in verses 1 through 5. And so as he turns his attention, the question kind of becomes, what should he do? What should Timothy, how should he respond to these realities? And so the title this morning is simply put, The Good Servant of Christ. And I'm going to confidently uh, uh, say um, that if many of you would name the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord, that you would want to be known as a good servant of Christ. And I'm hoping that's true of the vast majority of you, that if you are a Christian, this is what you would want, to be known as a good servant of Christ. Now, these words, we have to understand, uh, are firstly to a pastor, Timothy, and so they bear great weight on my soul and have caused a great deal of reflection this week because that's a primary responsibility to be a servant of Christ as we will see. But no doubt, kind of like the qualifications for an elder in uh, chapter 3, that though they're related to an office and the character qualifications, that should be the pursuit of all of us. This should be the character pursuit that we would all have. And, and so there's application for all of us to consider, what's it mean to be a good servant of Christ? And as I think about it for a pastor, what's an effective pastor look like? These days, there are uh, any number of expectations and answers to that kind of a question. Maybe it's um, the size of the church would immediately say something about his you know, impact or his faithfulness, so say some. Others might say communication style makes a pastor really effective. Is he relevant to the next generation? We get these sort of answers for what makes a pastor effective or, or what does a pastor need to be a really good pastor and, and there's maybe some merit to consider those things, but ultimately it has nothing to do with whether or not that person's a good servant of Jesus Christ. And this is what we're going to look at today. It's our big idea put in a question form. What does it take to be a good servant of Jesus Christ? What's it take to be a good servant of Jesus Christ? And we're going to see three major emphases out of the text this morning. So so here we go, starting in verse 6, number 1 is going to be this, training in the word and the good doctrine. Training in the word and the good doctrine. Look with me at verse 6. He says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers. Now the word that Paul uses for uh, put these things or place these things before the brothers, it's interesting that that word is not so much the idea of a really stern command as much as it is you would put this before the brothers in pastoral counsel. You would put it before the brothers in wise advice. You'll lay before the church these things. Now these things are the realities of verses 1 through 5. And so Paul is not telling Timothy, hey, in light of all these really serious things, people departing from the faith and, and deceived and deceiving others and believing in the, the teachings that come from demons ultimately, what should you do? Well, well, put these things before the brothers is a way of saying, understand as a pastor, 
enough of what's going on to lay before the brothers and sisters, the church, lay before them these warnings. Warn them of the false and aberrant ideologies and theologies that even spring up from within the church. And so this is not to necessarily say, hey, you've got to be the call-out guy, Timothy. All the time, every week, you're stomping your feet around, getting angry and pounding the podium. I don't know if they had podiums back then, but you're naming all the names. So he's not telling Timothy to light his hair on fire and go crazy about calling everyone and everything out. But it's to know that as a pastor, you need to understand the issues, understand the words so well that you know how to delineate the false teachings from the truth of the word. And you lay these things, you place these things before the church. And so it's proper to warn and wisely counsel the church in issues that are relevant to what's going on. This is what Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, I said Peter again. This is what Paul does to Timothy. He wants Timothy to do this for the church in which he serves. And if he does that, if you lay these things before the church, you will be, result, a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, in calling Timothy a good servant, that word servant is the same word as deacon, actually. It's not to say that Timothy served as a deacon, but it's to say that anyone who would lead in a church should understand themselves to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Regardless of whether there is an office you hold necessarily, if, you are, if you're leading in any capacity, maybe you're teaching, leading groups, you are a servant of Jesus Christ. And your aim should be to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. But what characterizes that good servant of Christ? This is what Paul lays out. He goes on because he describes now What's it look like to be this good servant? You are one who is being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, this this notion in verse 6 of training is the idea of uh, educated or formed or even nourished up by something. So this has to do with instruction and leading toward the formation of one's, we would say, theology, we might say biblical worldview. You are being trained up and nourished up in something, and it's something that Timothy has been following. He says, in which you have followed. And that word followed has to do with closely observed. You, Timothy, have been already for years, they've known one another a long time, you have been following closely these things, adhering your life to them. And what is this? It is these two phrases, the words of the faith and the good doctrine. Now, the words of the faith, because there's an article there, a definite article, we would say the, there's something specific that Paul's getting after here. This is not, you're trained up in words of faith, vaguely, whatever those might be. Because of that uh, definitiveness, if you will, there is a specific body of teaching Paul is getting at. And we could simply say, this is is the Bible, this is the scriptures. The words of the faith are the message contained in the very word of God by which we come to understand who God is, who we are, what salvation in Jesus Christ looks like. For Timothy... The words of the faith as of the first century would have been the Old Testament scriptures, 
would have been any apostolic writings that were going on and going around already as the church was in its infancy, and would have been even verbal instruction from the apostles related to the words of the faith that are in Jesus Christ. But we could summarize now to say this is the message of the scriptures, the 66 books of the Holy Bible. And secondly, the good doctrine springs from the words of the faith. The good doctrine or the good teaching that Timothy has been closely following are like this, summarized teachings from the words of the faith. They are the, um, we would again call them theology, that you have developed a biblical and robust theology from the text of Scripture. So you're trained up in the words of the faith, and from that, the good doctrine that comes out of the text of Scripture. And he's saying to Timothy, this is one vital aspect of being a good servant of Jesus Christ that you are being fed on, nourished up in, educated in, trained in the words of the faith and the doctrine that comes. And this really is a good time of year to ask such a question of yourself. Is this true of my life? Is this an ambition and a priority in my life that I am being trained up by the very Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, and am I developing an understanding of good biblical doctrine, the summarized teachings that come out of the text of Scripture? Am I prioritizing this in my day? Am I prioritizing this this year? If you are a goal setter, if you are a New Year's resolution person, and, and I would put myself in that lot, I enjoy making a couple. Let me ask, are you prioritizing right now, this week as you think about launching out well into the new year, the word of God and understanding of good biblical doctrine? And some might have a very good question, because if you don't know where to start, you would probably ask, where do I start? Right? I, I, I want that. Maybe guilty, wasn't thinking along those lines, but, but now I want to. It's only January 2, y'all. It's okay. You don't, have to, you don't have to start on the first. You can start on the second. I want to be brought up. I want to be trained in good doctrine. Where do I start? Well, simply put, start with prayer. I'll give you a few things. Start with prayer. Because if it's not on your radar until I just said it, you, you want to acknowledge that before the Lord. And you want to ask the Lord, change my desires, especially God. Not just, um, God, get me going in this. Or, or God, I, I promise I'll do it better, I'll do more. No, God, work in my desires. Because if it's not the desire of your heart that draws you into the word of God, that commitment is very likely to do the classic petering out after about six weeks, right? You get to about Leviticus, you know, if you're going through from front to end and uh, stutter out and there you go, right? Well, it was a nice try. Pick it up next January. We'll see how that goes, right? But if it's, it's the desire of your heart, God, change the very desires. Help me to want and yearn for your word. That's number one. I would say this secondly, get started, right? Go with a plan. You can find all kinds of plans online, but you don't have to have a plan. I was talking to a gentleman even this morning. Uh, three Old Testament chapters, two New Testament chapters, and a chapter in Proverbs every day. What he's been doing for six years. 
Three Old Testament, two New Testament, and a Proverbs. Or do something like that. Set a goal for yourself and get started. I would say this. Consider good helps also. It starts with the word. Don't run straight to the helps, right? Starts with prayer that your heart will be transformed, but go to good helps. And so a good study Bible has its place so long as you remember not to just have your eyes always go down to the bottom where the commentary is, right? But if you're ready to just enjoy the commentary when it's needed, a good study Bible, the ESV study Bible, the MacArthur study Bible, the Reformation Study Bible. I'm sure I left your favorite somewhere out there, but don't look at me like that, all right? Yours is probably fine too, but those are three if you need a place. The ESV Study Bible, MacArthur Study Bible, Reformation Study Bible. And then think about a good doctrine book. Like invest 40 or so dollars in a good doctrine book. That's like going out twice. Or you buy yourself an 1,100-page awesome work like John Frame Systematic Theology or Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Right? Like, get one of those so that you can begin to train yourself up in good biblical doctrine. There's an awful lot of application right there for you. So, first and foremost, what's it take to be a good servant of Christ? We're training in the word of the word of the faith and the good doctrine. And secondly, this, it's gonna take training in godliness. Training in godliness. Paul starts with a negative in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, he says. And this is a theme in 1 Timothy. Um, in 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4, Paul talks about those who teach different doctrine, heterodoxy, chasing after myths and speculations. In chapter 4, 1, and 2, he's already talked about those departing from the faith, uh, uh, deceitful spirits, and the teachings of demons. And now he turns to Timothy and he says, personally, you, Timothy, must have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, irreverent is this idea of profane or, or unholy, so, something that is unfit uh, uh, and, and not in accord with God's word. And then silly myths, uh, more like kind of old school translation literal would be old wives' tales. Now, don't shoot the messenger. It's just what it said. Old wives' tales. Commonly back in the first century, if you were one that spun tales around and treated them like they were, treated legends like they were true, you were equated with like a, an old woman who would tell uh, silly stories to young children. But the point is not to shame women for telling stories. That's not the point, right? And the point is not that, oh my goodness, I didn't know I can't read fiction. Like, right, I, I, can't, I can't write that, I can't read that. No, 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 that's not the point. The point is this, don't treat those stories, we might say today, fairies and dragons and, and all of that, the, the mythologies, don't treat those like they're fundamentally true. This is what it is. Irreverent, silly myths is to chase after not only something that doesn't accord with God's word, but to spin tales and live your life as if that is the fundamental truth of the universe. So have nothing to do, Timothy, with those that spin such tales and then treat their myths as if they're the fundamental truth of what is reality. And in the New Testament, myths, the Greek word muthos, myths is always counteracted with truth. So once again, this is not condemning the enjoyment of a good story. 
It's not what this is about. It's about saying, do not get wrapped up in believing those tales as if they are leading you into the truth that is not in accord with God's word. Instead, or rather, Paul wants Timothy now to train himself for something else. He says, rather, train yourself for godliness. Let's break that phrase down. This word train is not the same word as in verse 6. This word train is where we actually get the word gymnasium, gymnasio. And so it rather uh, speaks of exercising rigorously. And then yourself. That's not tangential. That's very important. There's a personal responsibility component to whatever Paul is teaching Timothy here. Train, exercise rigorously yourself for, the word for could be translated unto or toward. Train yourself unto, there's a goal in mind and that goal is godliness. This is the goal in mind that requires this rigorous effort that Paul is instructing Timothy to train himself in. But what does Paul mean when he says godliness, right? What is he addressing to Timothy? It can sound very abstract. We use a word like godliness in the church a lot. It's a very churchy word being godly, but it can be very abstract, hard to nail down. And Paul was, in fact, very fond of this word. He used it eight times in 1 Timothy, also used it in 2 Timothy, uses it in Titus. Uh, uh, Peter, this is probably where I kept messing up Peter. I was going to say his name. Peter also mentions it four times in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. So when we study this word, and, and I put in the work to study this word godliness and its context, and I want to just give you four um, ways of understanding godliness, all right? Four ways of understanding godliness. What do we mean? What's the Bible saying? What does it entail? It's at least these four things. It is firstly a way of conducting one's life that shows you belong to Christ. A way of conducting your life that shows that you belong to Christ. Secondly, godliness is directly related to knowing God and being transformed by the gospel. Directly related to knowing God and being transformed by the gospel. Thirdly, godliness is part of a tapestry of virtues for becoming a mature Christian. That's in 2 Peter Peter chapter 1. It's part of a tapestry of virtues for becoming a mature Christian. And then lastly, godliness involves a personal responsibility to discipline yourself toward it. There's a personal responsibility to discipline oneself toward godliness. So Paul calls himself to, calls Timothy to godliness, and then Paul's going to tell Timothy why. Right? I want you to train yourself unto, toward godliness. For, look with me at verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Now, Paul brings up a compare and contrast here, and the point is not really to make a referendum about bodily exercise and how much is needed and all of that. And so I'm not going to chase that rabbit trail this morning. 
It's not a referendum on that. It's rather to make a simple comparison and clearly elevate one over the other. That it is godliness that wins between the two. If you're going to compare bodily exercise or spiritual exercise, bodily training or spiritual training, it is the training in godliness that is greater. And why? It's because godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is, as I was reflecting on this this week, this is something that cannot be overstated in terms of how valuable it would be for you to consider if you actually believe these words. Right? I cannot talk you into believing verse 8. I, 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 can, I can get blue in the face, but it's not going to help me. And it's not going to convince you. This is not something that I can say, hey, do you understand these words? I think we all understand these words if we read them. But do you believe them? Do you actually believe that this is legitimately true, that godliness and training yourself in godliness has greater value really than any other kind of training in the world because it holds value in every way? And as promised for your present life and all that is to come, even into eternity. Godliness is a value in every way is maybe like saying uh, the gains that come with godliness will really pay off. And this is where maybe an analogy to physical exercise would make a great deal of sense. Like, you know how you can really tell when someone takes bodily exercise seriously? right? You, you, can, you can see it. You can see it in their, in their physique, in their makeup, whether it's related to weight loss or muscle building, or if it's endurance sports training or, or any other kind of sport that they train for. If they train hard, if they are committed and regular on their training, it pays off, right? It makes a difference. The same by analogy is true of training yourself for godliness. So think about a two-year period of time. Today's the beginning of 2022. In physical exercise terms, if someone was consistent in two years of rigorous physical exercise, it, it would pay off, right? You'd, you'd know in two years' time that they've been taking that seriously, and you'd be able to see on some level that they've been taking it so seriously. The same is going to be true spiritually of your life two years from now. The same type of godly growth that is measurable will be true of your life if you take seriously that it is of value in every way and it is of superior value even to bodily exercise, which does have some good value. And the, the converse is true also, right? In both physical and spiritual. Two years from now, haven't done a darn thing, you're going to be able to tell, Right? You get out for that first jog, hammy, gone. Yeah, you haven't done this for a long time, have you, right? I speak as one with personal experience, okay? Um, spiritually speaking, two years from now, haven't done a darn thing, no training in godliness. I don't know if you'll be able to tell. You'll be so asleep, but people will be able to tell about your life, your training, your lack thereof. And this is what I, this is what I want to just lay before you. I can't compel you into this. You have to ask yourself, do I believe this to be true, that it is of value in every way? And you might say, fine, uh, Chris, let's just say hypothetically, I want to know, what are those gains? 
What are those godliness gains that I can expect within a couple of years' time or, or hopefully less than a couple of years' time? What, what is it? Well, here's a, a, a list just to get you started. How about growing in wisdom versus human foolishness? How about an abiding peace in your life versus the anxiety and the worry that your life might be riddled in right now? How about humility before God and others versus a selfish lifestyle and prideful living? How about trusting in God with all your heart as you see his faithfulness in your life? How about your heart and your mind being tuned to love what God loves and hate what God hates? How about a steady joy in the midst of your trials? How about an assurance of salvation? and an eternal perspective and orientation rather than a temporal one. Those sound appealing? This is the training in godliness. These are the sum of the gains that you ought to be leaning into. But I've seen two things that get in many people's way when, I, when we think about this and we stare at this passage here. What gets in the way? First of all, we don't like the fact that it's our personal responsibility. We would like to believe it comes through osmosis, just being around the church enough. It's going to just seep into me, that godliness thing. It's just right, wrong. Or it's just a matter of time. I just need to be in this thing long enough, and I don't have to do much of anything. I don't have to really pursue much. It's just, it's just time. It'll just take its own course. No, it won't. Secondly, this Many people believe into the lie or buy into the lie that being serious about my faith is going to make me weird or just a stick in the mud. I'd much rather be a balanced person in my Christian life. I don't know if you know that the balanced Christian life is a fool's errand. You end up spending all this time trying to be worldly enough for non-Christians to like you and Christian enough for church people to sort of respect you. We don't want to miss too many Sundays or else the church friends are going to notice, but we ought to miss enough Sundays so that people know I'm not obsessed with going to church. And over the years, what becomes evident is that what's actually happening is not being balanced, it's actually being ineffective. And it's not growing in godliness, and it's unable to disciple or help anyone in their struggles. You end up with nothing to offer that Christian friend of yours in small group or just in the church who needs a word from God, from the word of God, by the way. You got nothing to give. You've not been in it yourself. If it's not in you, it's not going to come out of you in those moments of need. You're not training yourself for godliness. And 20 to 30 years into the faith, you have very little to show for your godliness. Am I over the target a little bit? Some of us are convicted, but we also, again, want to know how. Like, okay, I want to know how, though. That this sits heavy. It's difficult to hear. How do I train myself for godliness? I would say a few things. This is a list day today. This is a list day. It's New Year's. I don't know. Just... Had to happen. A few things. How do I train myself for godliness? I, I want to get started. This is only an introduction, y'all. This is only an introduction. But firstly, this. Number one, remember verse six. Don't lose sight of verse six. 
That, that, that's another kind of training. Education, the formation of your mind and heart in the words of the faith and the good doctrine. So that you are in the word and you are studying. You're a student of God and his word. Number two, you rely on the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit indwelling you. He does not do this work for you, but he does this work in you. And he empowers you for this work. So you don't isolate this verse and say, I got to grit it whether I like it or not. I got to do it. It's up to me. No, you don't go there. You go to God, the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Holy Spirit, change me. Motivate me, please. Identify within me the things that I resist. Help me to overcome them so that I am training myself for godliness. Number three, prayer. Not to be left off the list. God, again, please work in me the desire for this. I hear this message and I go, uh, I hear these kinds of messages and I go out of here feeling worse about myself. God, help me to turn this into motivation. And then number four, repent quickly and keep going forward. Stop being so shocked that you still sin. Now, that's not the same thing as taking sin casually. You were seeking to put sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit and because of God's work in your life. But don't be so shocked. And this is, I've I've said this so many times in counseling. Welcome to the counseling room for just a moment. Stop believing that when you sin a few times, you start back at square one. You ever said that to yourself? You ever heard that? I just feel like I'm starting back all over again. No, you're not. You're on a very long journey. You fell down on the road. Stand up through repentance. Take ownership of what happened before the Lord. Acknowledge it as sin for what it is. That's confession. Acknowledge it for what it is and trust in the work of Jesus and rejoice in the gospel and keep moving forward. Just take the next step forward. So there's your four places to get started. And you're training for godliness. And then Paul puts his seal of approval on that statement in verse 9. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. When he says that, and he says it a few different times, that's alerting you to say, you know, if Paul had a stamp to put on the letter, this is from the Lord. This deserves hearty approval from every Christian. This is deserving of full acceptance as a trustworthy statement regarding the necessity of training up ourselves in godliness and the value that comes in growing in godliness. This is a stamp of approval. And then thirdly this, what's it take to be a good servant of Christ? We see this, setting your hope on the living God. Setting your hope on the living God. Verse 10 literally reads, for to this we toil and strive. But if that word end is in your text or something like that, it makes sense. For to this end, what's he saying? For to this, verse 8, we toil and strive, we labor to grow toward godliness. We toil and strive, he says. He uses that phrase in a number of places to describe the work of missionary efforts. His own missionary efforts or those of his companions or, or somebody like Timothy, we toil and strive. And the words evoke a pretty extreme exertion, down to exhaustion. We toil, we labor, we lay it all on the line for this, Paul says. 
But the important thing is not to be just impressed by Paul, who toils and strives for godliness, but rather to understand the why behind the what for Paul. You need the right why behind your what if you are going to succeed long term in training yourself unto godliness. Because if we're going to just look at Paul's efforts, his missionary journeys, his sufferings for Christ, his church planting, all that he did and we see in the pages of Scripture, it's easy to get overwhelmed and say, I can't see myself ever being like that. And that kind of gets me discouraged to just compare myself to someone like that. That's not the point. The point is to know Paul's why. Why would he find this exertion, this training unto godliness, this, this lifestyle, why would he say this is not just worth it, but it's, it's really the only way to live as a Christian? He says it in verse 10. That for to this we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is Paul's why. Let's break this down. First of all, he has set his hope on the living God. When you set your hope on something or or on someone, you were banking all of your confidence and trust into that person, that claim, that organization, whatever it is. You are hoping in it. This reminds me of the old, old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's saying my eternal confidence for being forgiven, for being justified, for being saved, for being adopted by God as a child because of Jesus. My confidence, my hope in that is built on or set upon, this is the foundation, it's built upon Jesus alone. Jesus' blood and righteousness, his death for me, his righteousness granted to me as a free gift of God's grace. My hope is built on this. It's a confidence because of what you know. It's not the sloppy way we use hope in the English language. I hope my sports team wins today. I hope it doesn't rain today. These are the kind of things, when we use it like that, I can't control that. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, and it just is going to be. I just, I just hope it happens. It's more of a wish. This is not biblical hope. Biblical hope and setting that hope on God is a confidence to go all in based on what you know to be true because of the word of God, the words of the faith that you should be being trained up in. As you pursue God and His Word, that you know that you are a sinner needing forgiveness from a holy God, that you cannot save yourself and you would abandon all efforts to do so, and you must bank everything. Your eternal confidence rests on only God, His faithfulness, His mercy being extended to you through Jesus Christ, of no good works of your own, but the good work of Jesus Christ. I put my hope, I set my hope on that. And he says, here I set my hope on the living God. All other foundations are false. There is no other foundation upon which you can build your life and set The weightiness of your eternal hope, if you put it on top of anything else else besides the living God, that foundation will crack and break. If that foundation is just yourself, 
your own self-worth, your own self-righteousness, if that foundation is your stable career, if that foundation is an amount of money that you think you have to have to be comfortable in life, if that foundation is your family remaining healthy and intact forever, if that foundation is a false ideology or a false and dead religion and a dead God besides the true and living God, nothing else can bear the weight of your eternal hope being placed on it except for the living God. The living God is the foundation upon which you can build your life for literally eternity. And Paul is saying, we have set our hope on the living God. This is Paul's why. Why is this worth it? Why is this exertion, this life of of great effort, empowered by the Holy Spirit, why is this so actually sensical? It's because we've set our hope on the living God. And who is that living God but this? He is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now this phrase tends to bring some unnecessary angst and consternation for those among us maybe in the Reformed camp, if you will, of which I count myself. But we need, we need not be tripped up by this. To, to summarize, a, a, a great deal of ink is spilled on this and worthwhile to chase it down for yourself in greater detail. What we need to understand is that the word Savior is both an expansive and an exclusive word. It's expansive in that God is the Savior of all people generally. He's the only true and living God who has created all people. We must keep that biblical truth in mind. And that we all and all people are sinners who do not deserve any kind of sustenance from God, any deliverance ever of any kind from God, any provision from God. And yet God is patient and kind and generous to the unbelieving and rebellious who live in his world. So there's a savior component generally that is expansive, but then there is an especially sense, an exclusive sense, and that is for all who place their faith in God, who set their hope in God. Those who believe are the same people as those who have set their hope on the living God. They have understood by God's revelation, not just their own intellect, they've understood that they are sinners before a holy God. They have come to see their need. They have come to see that God has been merciful to send a Savior named Jesus Christ into the world. The very God who created all things and created all people, who holds it all together by the word of his power, has sent his Son, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ. He came, the living God came and lived among us. He lived and dwelt among us, and he was the only one, being fully God and fully man, that as man ever lived perfectly under God's law. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and he substituted himself on the cross for you and for me. He substituted himself where we should have been. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. When he went to the cross, he died for you and for me. Yet death could not hold him, death could not keep him, for he had no sin, and he is the Lord of lords. And he rose on the third day, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he reigns today... And he will return and he will judge the living and the dead in perfect righteousness at a time 
that we don't know that he alone knows. This is the good news of the gospel that we set our hope in. And this deliverance, this salvation from sin and from eternal death and damnation, from the judgment of God, from the wrath of God that we deserve that fell on Jesus, this is what we celebrate when we come to communion. We celebrate that Jesus himself, the living God, came and died for us. And yet he lives and he reigns. But we come to the table as believers, as worshiping believers, to put our eyes on him again. To remember that his bloodshed was for me and to cleanse me of my sin. His body was broken so that my relationship with the living God being broken could be made whole. That I can be reconciled to God. That I could, be go, I could go from an enemy to a friend and even greater than that, a child of God. All of this by grace. All of this because of the love of God that he pours out upon us through Jesus Christ. And so now is a time to consider where are you in a relationship to this living God? Are you one that he sustains the life of, but that you continually rebel in, in your sin? That you reject and that you mock and that you belittle? Or is he the God who is your savior from sin, death, hell, and wrath forever? And his name is Jesus Christ. So come to the table when you are ready if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus. If you're not a believer in Christ, we're, we're, we welcome you here, but we would say this is not a meal for you. Rather, we would say that we would ask you to sit, we'd ask you to cry out to God. We would try to compel you to do so. Be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Repent, turn from your sin, put your faith and all of your hope for your eternity in Jesus Christ. And then come and rejoice with us at the table together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us this morning. May we take serious this call to train ourselves unto godliness, never isolating it from the fact that it is absolutely dependent upon your Holy Spirit enabling us and indwelling us and empowering us to do that day in and day out. May this be the year where gains are made in godliness, where sin is left behind, where identity is found in Christ, where joy is fought for and regained in the midst of great trials, where hope is only placed upon you, the living God, and that hope that sustains us, that hope is never taken from us because it's in a God who never changes. May peace come and flood our souls, God, as we train ourselves for godliness, knowing that the effort is worth it because you have done the work to save us, brought us to yourself, reconciled us to yourself. And we now rejoice and we follow you, dependent upon you every step of the way, believing in great things that you will grow in us and that you will use us for, for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.